1: The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 7. A Night in the Show. I had to doff my cap to a supreme comic talent. I could have done the inebriated swell, I think, and I certainly believed I could, should, be the company number one. But I would be playing my swell. Stan played Charlie's swell, and played it to perfection. But it was also, somehow, his as well... They were close, Stan and Charlie, and each had unwittingly picked up a mannerism or two from the other. I could see, knowing it was Stan, that the performance was subtly refined, but no one else picked up on it at all. They just thought Charlie was having a really good night. As it happened, that was precisely what I was afraid of. My enjoyment of Stan's triumph was overshadowed by the dark cloud of my imaginings, my wonderings where Charlie and Tillie had gone off to and what they were getting up to together. So once Stan had come off stage, thrilled and flushed with his brilliant coup, and had revealed himself to our astonished colleagues, all of whom fell about laughing or fell over themselves to pat the lad on the back, I pulled him to one side to ask him the question that had been tormenting me since before the matinee. Where is Charlie then? I've no idea. Why? Well, did you not notice that Tilly is off sick today as well? As well as you, I mean. No, I... Oh, my dear chap, I had no idea. Stan's face fell as he caught up. I felt guilty then for raining on his parade, so I summoned up a big smile from somewhere and said, "'Never mind. We'll find out soon enough. Congratulations. You were every bit as good as Charlie. Better even.' Stan beamed. "'Do you really think so?' "'Thanks, Arthur.' The company was abuzz with excitement, and we all repaired, as per, to Brady's saloon on 7th and 43rd, where we commandeered a large table at the back. The chatter was all about Stan's terrific impression of Charlie, of course.' Do you know, Charlie Griffiths was saying, I think the exchanges with the uncle were better than ever. They certainly got more laughs than usual. He might have been right as well. Stan was a more generous person to be on stage with, and if you had a laugh coming, he was happy to help you get it, while Charlie was always more concerned about drawing attention to himself. That drip Albert Austin, Charlie's most ardent admirer in the company, tried to claim that he had suspected all along, and he was roundly shouted down. Amy, who was jammed into the corner next to him, slapped him with her hat. After that, though, everyone started conjuring up moments when they'd allegedly come close to catching Stan out. "'I tried to talk to you on the stairs, remember?' Muriel Palmer said to Stan. "'And you just turned and hustled away. I thought it was just typical Charlie, no time for the supporting cast. "'But now I get it. If I'd seen you right up close, I'd have spotted it then.' Austin spoke up again. "'It's actually rather good of Charlie, isn't it, to take such great care to think of the good of the company, "'ensuring that the understudy is up to scratch?' This notion brought him another slap from Amy's hat as everyone knew that Charlie had just wanted a sly night off while Alf was out of town. "'What do you think he got up to?' Mike Asher wondered. Cat house, probably,' George Seaman muttered with a wolfish grin. "'And what do you know about it?' his wife cut in indignantly. "'Charlie's not that sort. He's a nice boy.' After a while, the conversation started to get me down. My mind was already churning with speculations where Chaplin was concerned, so I took myself over to the bar... I ordered myself a big jar of beer, drank it straight down, and ordered another, looking forward to the numbing stupor that a couple more would bring. As well as the Tilly-related imaginings, I was beginning to be nagged by the feeling that Stan had somehow stolen a march on me, and my status as number two in the company might not be as secure as it had been. To take my mind off it all, I glanced at my nearest neighbours. Alongside me at the bar was a trio of individuals whom I supposed had been amongst the audience that evening. There was a big, straw-haired fellow chomping on a cigar, leaning forward on his elbows, and holding forth pretty much non-stop about something or other. Listening to him was a lugubrious-looking chap with a long, thin face, and most eye-catching of the three, a small girl, barely more than a child by the look of her, in a bright green dress. I gave her more than a couple of passing squints as I drank. She was a stunner. The barman came over to the little group beside me, however, and said to the big guy, "'Perhaps a bar isn't the place for your daughter this time of night.' The blond chap, chomping the cigar, drew himself up to his full height and threw his shoulders back, and all of a sudden he looked a formidable fellow to have a row with. "'My daughter,' the big lad said indignantly, "'don't you know this is the Gibson girl?' "'Huh?' "'You've seen her, promoting hats, cold cream, umbrellas and shoes, "'and she is now, I am pleased to say, "'a leading actress for the Biograph Moving Picture Company.' Snowed under by this avalanche of references, the barman moved away. The big fellow bit the wet end off his cigar and turned to spit it out onto the floor, catching me watching the three of them. "'Help ya?' he said, with more than a hint of leftover belligerence. "'I beg your pardon,' I said, "'but did you mention the Biograph Company?' I directed the question at the young lady, who smiled me a smile that I felt judder in my central nervous system, but it was the straw-haired giant who answered. "'That's right, buddy!' he turned around and leaned his back on the bar. "'You know, I used to come in this saloon all the time when I lived not far from here, a couple of blocks over, in Hell's Kitchen. Had to move, though. Got into a thing with a hooker called Lucille, and her pimp went for me with a razor. I figured a move would be good for my health.' His companions laughed indulgently at this colourful titbit, and he waved a meaty paw in their general direction. This here's Griffith, and Miss Mabel Normand, and my name's Senat, he said, then squinted at me. Hey, you were the magician, weren't you? The magician from the show, he added to his companions. Dando, Arthur Dando, I replied, shaking his hand, nodding to the others. Yeah, we work for Biograph, studios down on East 14th. You seen any of ours? Sunshine Sue, Two Little Waifs? I, uh... There, are your standard melodrama. Griffith likes that kind of stuff, don't you, D.W.? Eh? The lugubrious fella's face got even longer. It didn't look like he even knew how to smile. Sennett went on. D.W. there. He wants to make a real long feature. Five, six thousand feet. Tell a real meaty story. But Biograph thinks a long film is going to hurt people's eyes. They're worried about getting sued. For my money, I think trying to put across serious drama in a moving picture just looks silly. You're in the business, aren't you? Kinda. What do you reckon? I think you're probably right, I said. Exactly. People just want to laugh when they go out, like tonight. This was our last night out on the town and we went looking for a laugh. We leave tomorrow for California. We're going to spend the winter there. We need the sunshine, you see, to make pictures and the sun's not due to come out again in Manhattan till around Easter time. Senate called the barman over and bought a round of drinks, including me in, which was most affable of him. I was starting to feel pretty drunk now, but luckily he was planning to do the bulk of the talking. We should be making comedies, that's what I think. Biograph now is concentrating on feature fiction products, that's what they call them, and I keep saying make them comedies, that's what people want. You keep telling them Mac, said Mabel, clinking a glass against his. One day, Senate went on, one day I'm going to set up a studio all of my own, just for comedies. What do you think of that? I think good luck to you, my friend, I said. It's a million-dollar idea, I'm telling you, he said, shoving a cigar into his big mouth. "'Mabel shot me a long-suffering grin "'while Griffith looked like he wanted to go home. "'I thought that Sennett was right about people wanting to laugh, "'but that anyone genuinely searching for comedy "'would take themselves to one of the city's magnificent vaudeville houses "'where the comedians were in colour and in three dimensions "'and could speak and shout and sing, "'rather than the sort of low dive "'where films were shown on a sheet for a nickel, "'as this trio themselves had done. "'Say,' Sennett suddenly said, jabbing his cigar at me, "'your show tonight, that little drunk fellow was aces, we thought, "'didn't we, doll?' "'Sure, Mac,' said Mabel. "'He was a scream.' "'Griffith suddenly leaned over. "'He was remarkably limber,' he said, seriously. "'Exactly,' said Senate. "'Now he's just exactly the sort of fellow who should be in pictures. "'In comedy pictures. "'And when I set up my studio, that's the sort of guy I'm going to be talking to.' "'Yeah, one day,' said Mabel. "'What's his name? "'The Little Drunk,' Senate said. "'I looked over at the far end of the room, where Stan was laughing, reveling in his great success.' I wished I was in the mood to join them, but I was still brooding on Charlie and Tilly. "'His name? It's Jeff,' I began, distracted, and suddenly, through the alcoholic haze, a lightning flash seared across my brain. "'What if this chap, this straw-headed Senate, actually managed to talk Biograph into letting him make comedy pictures?' Why, it might be just the opportunity I was looking for, not for myself. I was not remotely interested. But Charlie might have an itch to scratch where the flickers were concerned. So it could be, couldn't it, that if somebody offered him a chance, he might take it, he might leave us, leave Carno. My imagination began to soar. And so, even though I was happy for my friend and proud of his success that evening, I suddenly felt it was important, vital even, to deny him the credit for it, so as to grab the chance, however remote, of ridding myself of my rival once and for all which is why my drunk mouth, lagging ever so slightly behind my drunk brain, said this. jeff Plim." plin What? Jeff-plin. Eh? Jafflin? Jafflin? No, ch-ch-chaffin. Uh, chaffin? To be frank, Sennett, Griffith and the lovely Mabel were all looking at me a bit strangely now, and I thought better of trying to correct myself any further. Chaffin. Near enough. <laughs> Ooh, <tries> ooh, Chapter 8 And the New Year In On New Year's Eve, our last performance finished just after eleven, and we all hustled quickly out of our costumes and into our going-out clothes, eager to dash the short distance to Times Square. Hats were jammed on heads, scarves slung around necks, gloves fumbled out of pockets, and all would be needed because it was fearsomely cold outside. We all thought we'd be able to stick together and celebrate the turn of the year, but there was such a swarm of people on the streets that it was impossible, and I quickly found myself walking alone. I say walking, it was the sort of shuffling half-step that all around me were doing to avoid stepping on the heels of the half-stepping shuffler in front. Mind you, if I thought the side streets were busy, then that was nothing compared to the square itself. It was packed. Thousands upon thousands were milling about, trying to find a little elbow room. Gentlemen, ladies, workmen, tramps, children up way beyond their bedtime, and here and there the sort of ladies that those children didn't need to know about yet. The square was lined with wagons selling food and drink, many with signs suggesting that they'd been hauled up from Coney Island for the occasion, and the thick aromas of frankfurters and cotton candy swirled around in the lightly falling snow. I found myself a vantage point, out of the glacial flow of humanity, and took in the scene properly. At the far end of the square, the tall, slender Times building was brightly lit from sidewalk to flagpole, as if a giant had stabbed an illuminated pencil straight into the ground. The show we had all gathered to see was on top of this, where the Times Square ball was poised to drop at the transitional moment. This was a 700-pound wood and ironwork sphere, five feet across, illuminated by 200-odd electric light bulbs, according to the papers, and I could just make out half a dozen silhouetted men taking the strain with the ropes that held it, partly masked by coloured streamers. I looked around at the crowd, gauging the impossibility of recognising anyone in all the hubbub, but then all of a sudden the masses parted like the Red Sea before Moses. An enormous man strolled across the square like royalty on a ceremonial progress, with a couple of equally massive bruisers flanking him and elbowing the populace aside. I saw caps doffed, I saw forelocks tugged-it was quite a thing-and then the waves of flesh could stand the pressure no longer and crashed together once more in their wake. I turned to a fellow who had shinned halfway up a lamp post to see better. Who is that? I asked. You dunno? That friend is big Tim Sullivan. Good heavens, is it really? I was still trying to keep our celebrated co-promoter in sight when I felt a fumbling movement to my side and turned sharply thinking some sneak was making for my wallet. To my astonishment, it was Tilly shyly hooking her arm in mine and pulling herself close. "'Hello, stranger,' I said, and she gave me a little smile. "'Well now, what was this?' I wondered. "'We'd barely spoken two words to each other "'since the night she missed a show sick "'and spent the evening with Charlie. "'I confess I'd been pretty fed up for the last fortnight, "'not only imagining the two of them together, but also missing her.' She had definitely been avoiding me, and in a a two-shows-a-day company like ours, I was not likely to have been mistaken about that. Even on Christmas Day, when Alf Reeves, bless him, had organised a great lunchtime dinner for us in a local restaurant with two geese and all the trimmings, you've got to have trimmings, and all of them too, Tilly had contrived to seat herself at the far end of the table from me, with the unctuous Melroyd in close attendance. And yet here she was, hugging my arm almost as if nothing had occurred. I looked down at her blonde ringlets spilling out from under her hat and sprinkled with twinkling snowflakes, and I racked my brains trying to come up with a smooth way to start a conversation that might tell me what I wanted to know. "'And?' I said. "'Yes?' Tilly sighed. "'Oh, Arthur,' she said, "'I couldn't bear for this awkwardness to go on any longer.' "'Ah, right Oh, I said, awkwardly. "'I never told you about the day Charlie and I missed the show.' ''Yes,'' I said. ''I mean, no. Stan was brilliant, you know, by the way. I know,'' she said. ''I saw.'' ''You saw?'' I said, baffled. ''You mean, you were watching?'' Tilly nodded. ''It sounded like a bit of fun, you know, a bit of a laugh. Charlie told me how he and Stan had a bet that Stan could take over and nobody would notice. Nobody did, neither, not till after. ''I'm not surprised.'' And so Charlie persuaded me to play sick the same day and, you know, have a day off. And, well, we've been doing two a day, seven days a week ever since we got here. And so I was just about ready to see a bit of New York, have a bit of fun. So, I said, what fun did you get up to? She looked sharply at me then, but continued. Well, you'll never guess what Charlie's idea of fun was. What? I breathed, bracing myself. "'Going to see the matinee of our own show, "'the show I thought we were taking a sneaky day away from. "'So, yes, we were there, and we saw Stan doing Charlie, "'and very fine he was too. "'And the prestidigitator seemed to manage very well "'without his assistant, by the way. "'He'd rather not, though,' I said, and she smiled again. "'Yes, Stan was funny, really funny, and that... "'Well, that was the problem. "'What do you mean?' "'Well, Charlie, do you see? "'He watched the whole thing, stone-faced, "'like he was in a trance.' I was laughing away with everyone else to begin with but after a while I started to get worried about him and by the end he was trembling and murmuring to himself. I had to help him outside because God knows I didn't want to sit through that dancing dog act and we went out into the street. He came to himself a little then and said, in a very courtly fashion, "'So what shall we do with our night off, Miss Beckett?' and I suggested we might go dancing. I haven't danced in so long. Or maybe we could go and take a walk by the river, or go and have a swanky meal in a fancy hotel, or even a little bit of all three, you know. I nodded, digesting the thought of Charlie and Tilly enjoying these activities together. But do you know what what he wanted to do? We, We had dinner, an early and rather quick dinner, which was nice enough. I tried to talk about Stan because he'd been a marvel, and I wondered what Charlie had thought, but he just went quiet, like he was in a world of his own. Then we went to the Metropolitan Opera House, if you can believe it, and saw something called Tanhauser. Funny? Not much. And long, oh my goodness, me. Good story? Well, it was in German, so I couldn't really tell you. It seemed to be mostly about two rival singers competing for the love of a beautiful queen. I was bored very nearly to death, but Charlie was really affected somehow. I was about to suggest we might leave before the end, but I saw that he was weeping, actually weeping, really big, hacking sobs. And when I asked him whatever was the matter, he said that the opera seemed to him to... Wait, what was it now? Sum up all the travail of my life. What do you think he meant by that? I can't imagine, I said. Anyway, he was so wrung out by the end, I had to help him back to his building, and he just disappeared inside, still crying. I mean, it was the strangest evening of my life, I think. And ever since, I've been dying to tell you about it. But I've just been, well, a bit embarrassed, really, I suppose. Do you understand? "'Of course I do,' I said, and the relief was so overwhelming that I felt like crying myself, although that would have been a peculiar thing to do after the story she'd just told me. "'So are we all right, do you think?' she said, looking up at me rather timidly, it seemed, rather apprehensively, and after a moment I smiled and nodded. Down came the globe to a massive roar, and as it reached the bottom of its pole there was a blinding flash, and the figure 1911 was illuminated in great letters of fire that seemed to conjure all the colours of the rainbow.' at least that's what it said in the newspaper, I didn't see any of it, I had my eyes shut, until Tilly's soft lips pressed to mine, and I'd pretty much lost interest in everything around me. I'll see it another time, I thought. A month later, I found myself in the freight yard of the Philadelphia Railway Depot with the rest of my colleagues, all fifteen of us yawning, shivering and clutching our bags, It was 5.30 in the morning, just six hours after we stepped off the stage at the Nixon Theatre, where we had played four fill-in weeks awaiting the start of our Sullivan and Considine engagement for the last time. A little way off, we could see cattle being herded slowly up a slippery ramp into a wagon, with rather more consideration than we felt was being shown to us. And further on still, some pig iron was being noisily manhandled onto a flatbed truck. Why were we there? Alf Reeves, our estimable company manager, had something to show us all, apparently. We'd had a good little run in Philly, another brand new theatre, a nice hotel overlooking Wanamaker's department store, which had a pair of Marconi masts on it, like two Eiffel Towers, for wireless telephony, whatever that was, and everyone was much happier playing mumming birds. I'd been seeing quite a bit of Tilly, after we'd made up on New Year's Eve, and she'd enlisted my help in sidestepping the clumsy advances of the stongy Frank Melroyd. I didn't tell Tilly this, for fear she would think I was still obsessing over my rivalry with Chaplin, but I spent a fair amount of time mulling over what she'd told me about him. It was clear to me that his strange behaviour was in response to seeing Stan being every bit as good as him. He'd been shocked to the core, because he lacked the temperament or the grace to be happy for his friend. He only saw another rival to put in his place. As for his overwrought reaction to the opera, well, plainly he could only have identified with the hero, the central character, as he was not psychologically equipped to think of himself in a supporting role. So what were the travails of his life that all the Teutonic bombastery brought so vividly to mind? His romantic rivalry with me, I thought, considering that he was sitting there watching it with Tilly. But there was also the rivalry of the two performers, the two singers, Tannhauser and Wolfram. I had to look that up, I'll admit it. I wondered whether he might not have been thinking of me as he wept but of good old Stan. I glanced over to where Charlie and Stan were shivering together, jacket collars turned up, hugging their slender frames, two peas in a pod. Where was Alf? The company manager had, you will remember, disappeared for a couple of weeks while we were at the American Music Hall in New York to do a recce of our first Sullivan and Considine dates and make some preparations. Finally he appeared, striding over from the station offices. Aha! He began, drawing us to him. Now... As you know, America is a big place. It's not just a country, it's a continent. I have had to work out how to transport the whole company, all our set and props and costumes and baggage, to all the places we will be playing over the next six months, and this is by far the most practical and economical way to do it. We're travelling with the cattle, someone piped up, appalled. No, 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 look. Over there. Alf turned us round to face the other way, pointing at his prize acquisition. Ta-da, he said. It was a train carriage, sitting all by itself in a siding. Green in colour, like most of the stock you would see on the main lines at that time, it looked like the illegitimate offspring of a passenger carriage and a goods wagon. One half had windows, rounded rather stylishly at the top, with canvas blinds halfway drawn and visible behind the glass, while the other half was enclosed, with two big sliding panel doors held together with a heavy-duty padlock. On the side there was the painted legend Private Car, and along the top was the typical raised section which housed the skylights for letting in a bit of sunshine. And at each end there was an observation platform enclosed by a railing so that passengers could stand out in the open air. "'Am I missing something?' Charlie Griffith yawned, "'apart from another six hours' kip.' "'This is ours,' Alf said, pleased as punch. "'It's the Carnot Company boxcar. "'At least it started out as a boxcar. "'It's been converted so that half of it is fitted out for passengers.' We travel in that end, and the other end has all our set and props and costumes in it, already loaded by the hands from the Nixon. And how do we get it to Chicago? Are there holes for us to put our feet through? (laughs) That tickled Bert Williams, despite the cold. Don't be daft. The Pennsylvania special will be along any minute to hook onto us. Now get on board, everyone. Suddenly our tiredness was forgotten, as we swarmed all over the boxcar like kids on Christmas Day, with Alf beaming like a benevolent Santa. We bundled up the steps, our steps, and whisked up the blinds and shoved our heads and shoulders four at a time out of the windows, our windows, while Albert Austin set up his box camera on the tracks outside to capture the moment for posterity. Of course, if we'd realised how much time we were destined to spend in the thing, we'd have been a little less anxious for a memento. It was exciting, though, to feel the whole thing jolt as the Chicago train reversed up the siding into us and to hear the heavy clunk of the coupling engaging. And then off we went feeling like royalty, a whole carriage all to ourselves. Not that there was anything particularly luxurious about the inside of the boxcar. It was not a plush Pullman-style carriage, not by any means. The fittings were what was known as tourist standard. Hard woven straw seats and basic tables. We had to ransack some of our stage furniture for cushions to make them bearable, because after two hours on those tourist seats you felt like you'd slipped a disc. Alf made a little speech as we rolled out of Philly. I want you to think of this boxcar as the fun factory away from home, he said. A fun factory on wheels. Any problem you might have that you want to talk about, then the boxcar is the perfect place to catch me. Because I can't go anywhere, can I? At the end of every week, as the boxcar takes us to our next exciting engagement, that's when you'll get your pay. It'll be just like the way the governor does it at the Enterprise. I'll set up a little office at the end there, over by the prop compartment door, and you can come and see me, we can have a bit of a chit-chat, and I'll let you have your cash, all right? "'Yes, Alf,' came the murmured reply from Fifteen Mouths. And that's how we began our love-hate relationship with the Carnot boxcar, our home away from home. Every week we would pile into the thing, often very early in the morning, to be taken hundreds of miles to the next engagement. We would eat, sleep, read, drink, chat, fall out, smoke, write letters, look out of the windows at the scenery, rehearse and play cards for hours on end. George Seaman took charge of the card game, and it always seemed to be on the go. Players would get drawn in, stay for an hour or two, drop out tired or broke, but George always seemed to be dealing. There would be a fug of smoke hanging over the table, and the constant flick of the cards and the tinkle of coins being won and lost. It was problematical for some of the boys to get paid their week's wages right there in the boxcar, actually, because old George was lurking just a few feet away to relieve them of it, and hours of boredom would eventually drive them into his arms. There was nothing more dispiriting, believe me, than arriving in a strange new city after a ten-hour trip on the boxcar, knowing that you had no money for food because you'd lost all your wages at poker as soon as you'd got them. There were a couple of camp beds that hinged down out of the wall and were suspended overhead on diagonal chains. On the very long-haul journeys, these were in considerable demand. Alf had to institute a ballot system to ensure that everyone felt they were having a fair crack, but even so, not everybody got to use them because the tickets were accepted as currency in the poker game. Another favourite boxcar activity was hairstyling. The girls would do their hair and redo it endlessly. If Emily wasn't fiddling with Muriel's curls, it was Muriel fiddling with Amy's or Amy tinkering with Tilly's. I could never spot much difference afterwards, but that didn't stop them badgering me to see what I thought. I would get drawn into the card game from time to time, but I liked to sit and watch America sliding by the windows, especially if I could contrive for Tilly to sit beside me, as it would never take too long for the motion of the car to send her to sleep on my shoulder. Not exactly moral turpitude, but nice all the same. Early on that first tour, someone painted an extra line alongside the C on the side so that the sign there read Private Car with a K. No one from the railroad ever mentioned it. I doubt if anyone ever noticed, but it helped to make it ours. And even though it was hot as a blast furnace in the summer, cold as an icebox in winter and uncomfortable as all hell, it did come to feel a little bit like home. But if I'd known some of the things that would go on in there, I might never have set foot in it."